and welcome to ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm ABI's resident scholar for spring 2016 and also a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So today we're looking behind the headlines at retail bankruptcies, and we're not going to talk about landlords and leases and some of those issues that, are, of course, are also very important. But we're going to look at other key relationships that are principally governed by other state property and commercial law. Exhibit A for this is really sports authority, where there were disputes over the concept of a consignment and how much freedom a debtor had to sell assets over the objection of those vendors. So we have the perfect guest to get some clarity on this topic today, uh, Juliet Morangello, professor at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. Now, Professor Morangello needs no introduction for many listeners. She is a former ABI scholar in residence, uh, but she's also done extensive research and writing on the intersection of the bankruptcy code and state property law. And she's also played a key role in Pennsylvania's enactment of various amendments to Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code, which plays a big role in what we're about to talk about today. So welcome, Professor Juliet Morangello. Thanks, Melissa. It's always fun to have the opportunity to speak with you. So I want you to think back first before we dive into the substance about how you ended up in this field, not only studying and teaching bankruptcy, but also with such an emphasis on property law and the full range of commercial law that not all of us have. Sure. Um, Well, you know, when I was in practice years ago now, um, I started out representing banks that were making real estate construction loans. So I really started out as a real estate lawyer, and I like to think of my evolution in property as going from dirt to data. So doing construction loans, I, of course, got exposure to both real property law and the Uniform Commercial Code, But it was also in the late 80s to early 90s, so a lot of the real estate projects that we worked on crashed and burned, and we all became workout lawyers. So that's where bankruptcy came in. And when I started teaching, uh, I taught just the upper-level bankruptcy and uniform commercial code courses, but I was always fascinated uh, by how property rights were treated in bankruptcy, especially as new forms of valuable assets, such as Internet domain names, emerged. So I picked up the first-year property course to get the rest of the story. And when you teach property after you've taught Article 9 and after you've taught bankruptcy, you really see how those concepts that students think are so um, old and musty and irrelevant in the first year of uh, first semester of property, like relative title and estates and land and who got to the fox first, Um, are really critical to sorting out rights in bankruptcy. So it was really fun picking up property after having the upper-level courses because it really gave me an appreciation of how those concepts really do apply in Article 9 and in bankruptcy. So I love that concept of from dirt to data, and uh, we'll do a little less dirt today, but we're definitely going to get to data and a couple stops in between. So the first issue we want to talk about is consignments. As I mentioned in the introduction, this just came up in the Sports Authority Chapter 11, and it seems that the vendors thought that they still owned the inventory, uh, that they had consigned to Sports Authority, and Sports Authority, of course, took a very different position. So let's start with the basics. What is a consignment? And there may be, they may be sliced and diced a couple different ways, but what, what is it? Sure, absolutely. And of course, a lot of people who would be listening to this would be familiar with consignments in their own personal lives. I mean, in, in common usage, the term consignment means an arrangement in which an owner of an item delivers that item to another person for the purpose of selling it. And in a consignment, the owner 
the original owner retains legal ownership until the item is sold. A lot of individuals, of course, are familiar with that concept because they have sold goods such as furniture and clothes through consignment shops. Um, now, keep in mind, in that case, the seller is usually a consignment shop known to be selling the goods of others, so any creditor of that store would know that, um, that everything in the store really belongs to, to someone else. And it's interesting that you said that the vendors and sports authority um, thought they still owned the goods because because they did, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. So um, the Sports Authority case has really brought uh, consignments into the, into the spotlight um, in the commercial realm. So the Sports Authority had acquired a lot of its inventory under a consignment arrangement called pay-by-scan, under which about 170 suppliers provided goods under a consignment agreement. And the reason Sports Authority did that was because it allowed them to acquire a wide variety of inventory without a large upfront capital commitment. Under pay-by-scan, the vendor, um, such as ASICS was a, a major one or is a major one, owned the inventory while it was on the shelves at Sports Authority. And then once Sports Authority transferred the goods to a buyer, ownership passed to that buyer and Sports Authority sent payment to the vendor. So the way that the consignment agreements worked was that title to the goods, and, and by the way, title is not really a term that the Uniform Commercial Code uses, but title to the goods would pass from uh, the, the supplier to the ultimate buyer through Sports Authority. But that's what gets us to Uniform Commercial Code Article 9, because... Um, a consignment for Article 9 purposes is an arrangement whereby a person, so the inventory suppliers in this case, delivers goods to a merchant, sports authority, for the purpose of sale, and the merchant deals in goods of that kind and is not generally known by its creditors to be substantially engaged in selling the goods of others. Um, the definition of consignment in Article 9 it specifically excludes consumer consignments, excludes small dollar consignments. And so Article 9 covers consignments and says that the consignor, so the, um, the supplier, has to comply with Article 9 by filing a financing statement in order to have superior rights over the creditor of creditors of the retailers, so sports authorities. So uh, Article 9 doesn't say that sports authority has title to the goods, but it says that in order for, um, for the suppliers to retain their rights in the goods, they need to comply with Article 9. Um, and that's what was kind of surprising about um, the, the, the Sports Authority case, because first of all, um, the pay-by-scan agreement uh, that Sports Authority entered into with its suppliers states right in the agreement that the arrangement is a consignment as defined by Article 9 of the UCC. Now, um, many of the suppliers are saying, nope, they, it, UCC Article 9 has nothing to do with us. Um, but the agreement itself, uh, said that it was. So 
What was surprising was the extent to which these suppliers didn't comply with Article 9 by filing a financing statement. Some suppliers did not file financing statements. Some filed them during the preference period. Um, and some filed financing statements with mistakes in them. For instance, uh, the wrong debtor name, uh, the name of the holding company rather than uh, the name of Sports Authority, um, the debtor. So uh, because, all, because so many of these um, suppliers had not complied with Article 9, um, they were, or the Sports Authority um, is saying that they are unsecured creditors uh, in the Chapter 11 and that the other creditors of Sports Authority have priority over them. So let's break this down a little bit. So in, the, in, a, in a perfect scenario, we're not, we're not giving legal advice here, but in a perfect scenario, Article 9 seems to anticipate that vendors protect themselves using the tools of Article 9. So especially if you're dealing with a sports authority and not a known consignment shop. So uh, so they need to have filed a financing statement and the timing has to be has to be right. So they're not in the preference period um, just to protect themselves overall. But then we also have this other element of there being lenders uh, who want to have a, a first priority security interest in a floating uh, floating set of inventory. So can you talk a little about what what vendors are supposed to do given that? Sure. So what Article 9 uh, basically turns a consignor into is a purchase money secured creditor with a purchase money security interest in inventory. And uh, there are special rules for creditors um, with purchase money security interest in inventory. So, you know, under your regular purchase money security interest rules, um, a purchase money secured creditor has uh, priority over a floating lien creditor as long as they um, perfect their interest in the goods uh, within a certain period of time. Um, when inventory is involved because of the um, the nature of inventory, the fact that it turns over, the fact that a floating lien creditor with an interest in inventory could find, you know, it, itself with no security interest at all if everybody, if all the, the suppliers automatically got purchase money priority. Um, the purchase money secured lender with an interest in inventory is supposed to give notice of its interest to the conflicting secured creditor, which didn't appear to happen either because so many of these consignors did not comply with Article 9. And, you know, just as far as compliance with Article 9 goes, it, it seems to be really cheap insurance, right? I mean, even if you don't think that your consignment is covered by Article 9, um, the most expensive state in which to file a financing statement is, is this one, Pennsylvania, where the filing fee is $84. Um, that's a very small price to pay to protect yourself. And I usually tell my students that Article 9 encourages precautionary filings and doesn't, and those filings can't be used itself as evidence to suggest that the party thinks they have a different relationship. Do you agree with that interpretation? I do agree with that. In fact, Article 9 makes that explicit when uh, you talk about leases, right, whether a, a lease is truly a lease or a um, 
secured sale disguised as a lease. So, yes, certainly. I mean, it's it's cheap insurance. It wouldn't necessarily turn a non-Article 9 transaction into an Article 9 transaction. Well, so I do, uh, we'll, we'll move on to a different issue, but I do hope that the 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 attention that was paid to the sports authority issues may be a wake-up call to vendors that uh, it may not change, won't always change the outcome of, of priority, but that there are some cheap things that they can do to better protect themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. So moving on to another issue that comes up in the cases of bankrupt retailers is rights of reclamation. And we're going to have some dueling rights of reclamation uh, under state law and under federal bankruptcy law. So so we'll do the vocabulary again. What is reclamation? Okay, so reclamation um, is potentially a powerful tool for suppliers. Um, generally, a right of reclamation allows a seller who has delivered goods to an insolvent buyer to recover those goods if the seller meets certain requirements. And so a seller who delivers goods to an insolvent buyer on on credit, right, a lot of supply arrangements are 30-day, 60-day unsecured credit. Um, When that seller discovers that its buyer is insolvent, the seller has the right to recover the goods themselves. And, you know, you talk about the um, dueling, state law and federal law rights of reclamation, um, I have to say it is kind of a bit of a mess. Um, So the basic right is provided uh, by state law in Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code, uh, which tells us that when the seller discovers that the buyer has received goods on credit while insolvent, the seller may reclaim the goods upon demand made within 10 days after the buyer receives the goods. Um, That right of reclamation is subject to the rights of a buyer in the ordinary course of business or other good faith purchaser. And as I mentioned before, it allows the seller to get the goods themselves. Um, But here we're talking about bankruptcy. And you mentioned again the, the, the dueling rights. And the bankruptcy code also um, provides for a right of reclamation, um, but the right of reclamation is placed in the section that talks about the limita- that talks about uh, the limitations on the trustee's avoiding powers. So it's in 546 of the code, um, which tells us that the trustee's avoiding powers are subject to. Uh, the rights of a seller with a reclamation right. Um, if the buyer has received the goods while insolvent, uh, the goods have been delivered within 45 days before the bankruptcy, uh, the seller makes a written request for reclamation, and uh, the bankruptcy code also tells us that the reclamation right is subject to prior rights of a secured creditor. And this section um, was uh, amended in 2005 with the BAP-CEPA amendments, and it's not a perfect fit with the Article II reclamation right. I mean, for one, the Bankruptcy Code has a more limited definition of insolvency than the Uniform Commercial Code. Um, There's a 45-day period rather than a 10-day period. And a question has arisen since 2005 Um, of whether the bankruptcy code provides its own um, separate federal right of reclamation 
Um, or does the bankruptcy code simply um, incorporate the, the state law right of reclamation that creditors have under Article Two of the UCC? Okay, so we have those 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 differences and those uh, sort of un, sort of unanswered question. And one thing that I find interesting about the the bankruptcy version is going by this definition of actually getting the goods back that it seems to be that in in some situation the goal isn't to get the goods back it's to get basically 100% payment on a debt versus uh taking cents on the dollar is that how you've seen things play out as well that it's used more as a almost a priority rather than actual right to get the goods back well, sure, and um, certainly vendors have argued that, but some courts have said, no, this is an in-rem right, it's not a right to proceeds, it's a right to get the goods, and if you don't do everything you're supposed to do to get the goods, then what you're left with is an administrative claim, which the bankruptcy code um, does provide for. Well, sure, that 20-day that, that provision that's uh, also added in 2005 and is an, also an unusual fit into right. the bankruptcy code. So uh, so y- you've suggested that there are still some lingering questions about the differences between these provisions. So uh, do you think this hasn't really settled down into a standard practice, or is it varying by jurisdiction? Well, there are not a whole lot of cases on it, um, and and they tend to say that there is no um, standalone federal right, which actually does make sense because when you go back to how the bankruptcy code treats uh, property rights created under state law, um, you know, courts look to the Butner case, which says that um, uh, that the bankruptcy courts. Um, Bankruptcy code incorpor- basically incorporates state property law unless some federal interest requires otherwise. And, you know, it's hard to see why some federal interest would require otherwise in the case of a right to reclamation. Sure, that and that makes a lot of sense to me. But on that note, I should say that Juliet has done some great research on the Butner case and reminding us really what the, what the limits of that case are. We, we tend to refer to the Butner principle a lot in the bankruptcy world, but uh, I would recommend that people look at Professor Morangello's article if they want to get regrounded in that it, do- it is not all-encompassing. Uh, so a-, a plug there that uh, I'm glad to have the chance to make. Thank you. So let's move to, a, to another issue that comes up in retailer bankruptcies having to do with licenses. Uh, licenses aren't exclusively in the in the retailer realm, but it's an area we can expect to see it. So I'm going to ask the property professor again what a license is. Um, sure. So you've got various types of licenses, um, and they're basically a, a right to, a right or a privilege to do something. So states issue liquor licenses, which uh, provide a right to somebody to um, you know, sell liquor in a restaurant, for instance. So certainly this could come up in um, in a, a retail bankruptcy because, you know, sadly, with so many of these retailers filing for bankruptcy, you know, they're kind of putting malls out of business, which is a scary thought when you think, gosh, what are we going to, what, what's going to happen to all those properties? And of course, malls have restaurants. So, um, so you could certainly have the, the liquor license issue, um, 
you know, come up in, in a, a retail-type bankruptcy. Now, you know, when a state issues a license, um, uh, the state, of course, considers that license to be a privilege, um, not a property right on the part of the holder of the license. And you, know, you see this also with, for example, broadcast licenses that are issued um, by the federal government. You know, the, the, the idea is it's a right to do something, not uh, or a privilege to do something, not a property right. Um, when we talk about state-issued licenses, though, uh, we run into Section 9408 of the UCC, which came in in the um, 2001 amendments to Article 9, um, which invalidates transfer restrictions um, for general intangibles. Okay, so in Article 9 parlance, a license would be a general intangible. Um, 9408 invalidates transfer restrictions on general intangibles to the extent that such a restriction would, pre, would prevent the grant of a security interest. And so, you know, I use liquor licenses as an example because, again, you know, I live in the middle of Pennsylvania where there aren't many liquor licenses, and the ones that are around are very uh, expensive. So, you know, nobody's buying a liquor license from the state, but what happens when somebody wants to open up a restaurant or, you know, a grocery store is allowed to sell beer? Um, they basically buy the right to apply for that license from somebody who is giving up her bar or restaurant or you know some other uh, entity with a liquor license. And here, liquor licenses trade for about half a million dollars. So, um, you know, undoubtedly there is value in that license that the holder of the license itself can get. So. Um, when Article 9 was revised in the late 90s, um, the drafters recognizing that said that if there is a state law that says um, the license, or gener and I'll, I'll stick with the term general intangible, if there is a state law that says the general intangible cannot be transferred, Article 9 will ignore that and allow a security interest to be created. Now, you might think, well, okay, does that mean a bank can foreclose on a liquor license? Exactly. My my students often ask about pharmacies. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to start selling <laughs> off the exactly. uh, the the restricted the restricted products. Exactly. Same idea. And Article Nine makes it clear that um, that no, a creditor cannot foreclose on such a general intangible. So basically, what nine four zero eight does is, you know, and even though it's a state law and not supposed to do this, but of course, um, you know, a lot of people think that, article, that revised Article 9 really revised the bankruptcy code. Um, what Article 9 does is really preserve the proceeds value of that license in bankruptcy, right? Because you have to have a pre-bankruptcy security interest in order to have um, the post-bankruptcy proceeds. Now, you know, here's another example, and when we were talking about consignments, you know, this, this issue of, well, what property interest is created, right? So I want to go back to consignments for just a second because the consignors, some of them um, objecting when sports authority said, hey, you guys are unperfected and you're just unsecured creditors, they said, well, no, actually, um, our arrangement created a bailment, and a bailment doesn't even give you a property interest. So um, go away, which kind of guts the whole consignment um, 
provision in Article 9 of the UCC. You know, Article 9 doesn't really grant sports authority a property right. What it says is that, or it doesn't grant sports authority ownership. What it says is that uh, sports authorities' creditors can have <coughs> priority over these consignors. And, you know, we see that a lot in in all recording-type statutes, right? I mean, in, you know, real estate recording statutes, you always have these goofy um, uh, hypotheticals in law school casebooks where somebody, you know, sells Blackacre and then the buyer doesn't record his deed and the person sells Blackacre again. And people say, well, gee, how can you do that? And it's a it's a priority question, not so much a, a you know, ownership question. So with licenses, um, what Article 9 attempted to do is uh, grant a property interest or a limited property interest so that the holder of this valuable right could give a security interest in it. Um, however, um, again, going back, to the going back to what Article 9 actually says, it says restrictions on the transfer of a general intangible. Well, a general intangible is in turn um, defined as the debtor's property. And so you have some case law that says, well, a license isn't property, and therefore it can't be a general intangible, and therefore 9408 doesn't apply, which again sort of guts the whole purpose of 9408. And so you see that restriction, you see that uh, argument raised by some state agencies, and it depends on the state. You know, and again, I'm focusing on liquor licenses, but you know, here in Pennsylvania, there is a um, a line in our law that governs liquor licenses, which is interesting, and it was inserted after a, a, a case that dealt with this, but there's just a line at the end of the statute that says, um, with respect to creditors, a liquor license is property, you know, after it goes into this big explanation of how it's just a privilege. So we can be property for, for some purposes, but not others, which gets very well, interesting. And that's a really important point to keep in mind, right? Because you know, before we go to law school, we think of property as a thing or a piece of real estate. But then we go into our first year of property, which most of us have forgotten by the time we get out of law school, and we learn that what property really means is the relationship among people with respect to assets, right? And so absolutely something can be property for some purposes and not for others. I mean, you really can't answer the question of what is property without asking the further question, why are you asking? So I guess given that we see divergent court decisions on whether licenses are property of the bankruptcy estate in bankruptcy cases, we should not be surprised that there similarly would be divergent court conclusions on whether licenses our property for purposes of, of secured lending. Absolutely. Uh, the question is when those two come together, uh, and I don't know that we've seen too many cases where that 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 has happened, but that would be something would to be watch something in retailer bankruptcies well, as well. Yeah, although we certainly we have in the context of broadcast licenses, where some courts have, you know, sliced the proper sliced the interests um, in terms of what is the holder's interest vis-a-vis -vis the government and what's the holder's interest vis-a-vis -vis other private parties. Right? Sure, Clearly, sure. the holder's interest 
vis-a-vis the government is not a property interest because the government can always terminate um, a, you know, a license if somebody does the wrong thing. But vis-a-vis creditors, it could be a really valuable asset, which is really what 9408 is trying to capture. Sure. So takes us to our fourth issue, uh, having to do with brand identity and social media issues for retailers, uh, getting more into the, the truly intangible here. Uh, so I think both of our attention was uh, caught by a, a firearms retailer case in the Southern District of Texas in 2015. I think the, it was the CTLI case was the, the, the technical name of it, but it was the store was Tactical Firearms, or the, the business was doing business as Tactical Firearms. And there, there was a dispute about whether certain social media accounts were property of the bankruptcy estate, in part because the former owner was no longer the owner uh, through the bankruptcy process, but the former owner did not want to share the passwords to these various social media accounts. And so the court did hold that those accounts were property of the estate uh, and that those passwords had to be shared. But what, what struck me, especially after talking about that case with intellectual property people, was how f- Facebook, Twitter, others were not were not parties to this dispute. They weren't part of the, that conversation, and they might have raised some very different points there. So, what what was your reaction to that case, and wh- what do you think Facebook and Twitter would say that might be different than how a, the bankruptcy system would view these issues? Sure, I think they would say something very different, but a couple of things jumped out at me about that case. I mean, one is, first of all, it's been now, you know, 15 years that courts have been grappling with um, what I would call um, new brand assets. Right, so 15 years ago, people were talking all the time about domain names. Now it is things like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and so on. And you know, the court in the tactical firearms case, um, you know, did say social media accounts can be property of the estate, and in fact, uh, relied um, or, or the analogy the court used was customer lists. You know, said that it was always considered uh, subscriber lists to be property of the estate. And these days, you know, you get your subscriber list um, on on social media. Um, and another interesting thing about the tactical firearms case, of course, and you know, you mentioned it was um, two business partners that 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 um, uh, fell out. Um, you know, one big issue there was did the accounts belong to the individual or the company, which certainly um, could be a real issue in a small business case because social media marketing depends so much on the print posting to the account. And this particular um, user of the Twitter account um, characterized himself as a marketing genius and had all sorts of interesting things that he posted, so he said it was his. But um, So what I thought was really fascinating about that case and that I think is something that people should keep in mind going forward um, is the role of the terms of use for the Facebook account. Now, um, as you pointed out, Facebook and Twitter were not even um, parties to this case. But what happened in the tactical firearms case was that um, originally the Facebook account was in the name of the company, and then 
when the partners had their falling out, um, the the one who was posting, Mr. Alcide, um, changed the name on the Facebook account to his own. Okay, so this um, goes through the bankruptcy court, and the bankruptcy court says, yeah, it's it's property of the estate, and it is a business account. But then they look at the Facebook terms of use and say, gee, we can't do anything here because Facebook has a one-name change policy. And if you have a Facebook page that has over 200 likes, you only get to change the, the name once. And I was really surprised that the court sort of threw up its hands on that one. They said that the other partner could either get a waiver of the policy or get Facebook to migrate the fans to another page with the business name. And if Facebook refused to do that, then then um, uh, the, the recourse would be against um, Mr. Alcide. And my question here is, shouldn't, the, shouldn't bankruptcy law have trumped these transfer restrictions? I mean, if it is property of the estate, why can't the court you know, order Facebook to turn over this account? And... So I think this you know, really makes us think about what the appropriate role of terms of use is or are um, in defining property rights. And you, know, you asked what I thought Facebook and Twitter would say about this. Well, I think we have um, a, a really good example or of, of what they would probably do in the law that is being considered in a number of states, the um, Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act, which some people call digital death. And the question is, you know, when, when somebody dies, what happens to that person's Facebook account? Facebook says it can just turn it off. Um, but, you know, the uh, argument on the other side is, well, you know, if you die and your letters are in a box in the attic, your heirs can get that. So why is there any difference? And Facebook has really pushed hard against allowing heirs to have access to accounts. And so, you know, you think of that in the property context and you think, okay, so Facebook thinks that everybody has simply a life estate in their accounts. Well, I mean, life estates were originally, um, you know, de originally developed to control inheritance. Um, and, and so I'm not sure that, that Facebook should necessarily be able to cut off um, uh, rights of heirs um, by doing that. But I, I do think that, that Facebook would really um, sort of oppose this. So take us to what the next frontier of these issues might be. Uh, we've just been talking about these social media accounts, but that's clearly the bridge to the next big thing. What do you see in terms of broader implications of the kinds of questions you've just been discussing? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, I use social media accounts as an example of where, um, where people try to govern property rights through terms of use. And I think we will see more and more of that as the Internet of Things develops. I mean, right now, you know, all, our, all of our cars are just filled with software, but, you know, we are seeing more and more uh, items of tangible personal property that are connected to the Internet. And, you know, anytime something is connected to the Internet, you find terms of use. And, you know, again, back you know, 15 years ago when various types of intangible assets became more prevalent, um, 
you know, people start, you know, you always look for analogies and courts and lawyers and business people looked to the intellectual property analogy, right? So everything is licensed, even if it's not really what we would call intellectual property. So I think we're going to be seeing more of these terms of use disputes and how they govern property rights um, as, as in the Internet of Things develops more. I think that's a great place for us to end. So you've been listening to ABI Podcast. We've been with Professor Juliet Morangelo. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Melissa. Uh, and thanks to the listeners. We'll be talking with you again soon.